Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The show is about to begin. Good afternoon to everyone out there in podcast world. Welcome to our sixth, actually the seventh podcast. This is a show about the lost art of medicine. And for those of you who are dissatisfied with healthcare's status quo, I'm Andy DeLeo and I have with me my co-hosts, Awes Mursa and AJ Monpettit. Hey, Andy. Good afternoon. How's it going, gentlemen? Fantastic. I will say that I am doing better than Awes today. I'm, I'm barely <laughs> awake right now. It, it sounds like it's a little bit of the zombie apocalypse uh, on your side, OS. It certainly is. I've got two little ones that are at home. I've got two semi-older ones that are just driving me nuts. I've got this online learning hybrid model where the kids are in school every other day and trying to put a five-year-old in front of a computer for eight hours is just uh, mentally draining for sure. Eight hours? Yep. Wow. Well, I will share with you, Wes, my wife and I actually chose to homeschool because our oldest is in first grade. Right now, the amount of time commitment we have is one hour a day. Correction, it is now two and a half hours a day. I'm just going to throw that your way, see if maybe that would be an option for you to save a little bit of sanity. One hour per day. I don't even understand how that's possible. It's because you're super focused and concentrated on the curriculum that you can go through the things that they need to focus on very quickly. And at first grade, there's not a whole heck of a lot that they need to know to pass the test at the end of the year to say that they learned what they needed to learn for first grade. Interesting. It's not a bad idea. Might have to look into this. Yeah, I think it's just when you strip away the unessential stuff and all the fluff that really... It's kind of like what we've seen in studies with people working at hours a day that. Right. I was going to say, it reminds me of one of our previous topics about just-in-time learning. I mean, I just spent the last hour listening to about 17 or 18 kids go through show and tell talking about their Barbie and the color of their hair. Well, I feel for you. I was there last year at the end of the year with the lockdown, so I know what that's like. With that being said, the talk of hybrid models is actually a really good segue into the first article and and topic, which I'm going to start with. So the article that I read that I want to start with is about healthcare in Walmart. So the article that I read was discussing, and it came from Radiology Business. Walmart just recently opened up their fifth healthcare center in Noonan, Georgia. So it's about 40 miles southwest of Atlanta. And what's interesting about this clinic specifically is that they've included the ability for patients to get x-rays. There's diagnostics. They've got primary care, laboratory, dental. And this is actually the fourth site like this in Georgia. The fifth site, which was opened up earlier in the year, is actually in in Arkansas. What they've done is they've kind of created this preventative care service model inside of a, a Walmart. In addition to that, they've got uh, specialized community resources. They're also bringing online education in-center workshops to educate the greater community about the importance of preventative health and wellness, which I think is really interesting because up to this point in time, 
Walmart has opened up nine other clinical care sites within their stores. But those nine previous sites, they don't have x-rays. They, they don't have the full diagnostic capability. I'm not sure. I don't believe they have dental. I couldn't really find a, a lot of information on if they did or, or not. The five health facilities that are sort of more comprehensive in nature, they are operated with a physician. They've got community health workers, and those community health workers are really focused on helping patients to navigate their care journey within Walmart. And it sounds like within the greater community as well. It sounds like they're testing this and they're trying to figure out the right size of the clinics, the technology that they place inside of the clinics, and they wanna expand. So it sounds like they've named some other sites, Chicago being one of them. What's interesting about it is if we think just in terms of Walmart as a store, we know that Walmart does 256 million visits per week. Is that global or is that US? Yes. Yeah, that's that's globally. But if you just think about the number of people that are going to a Walmart shopping, whether it's for food, health and beauty aids, household goods, whatever the case may be, I think it's interesting because maybe what medicine used to be or or physician offices used to be is that they were in the neighborhoods, they were closer to home, and now they've kind of grown into these big box hospitals that take an event to actually go from home to go see a physician. Maybe Walmart's onto something here and they're actually bringing that capability of seeing your physician closer to the neighborhood. What do you guys think about this? Where do you see the future and do you think people in communities that you live in would they actually trust Walmart? Well, that's a good question if they would trust it. What do you think it was? I will give you a real life case example that and an experience that I had with Walmart. I needed new glasses. I've never gone to Walmart, Target, or any of these places. I just never really gave them credit. I never thought that they would be as good. I've always stuck to Pearl Vision or these name brand vision stores. I went to Pearl Vision. I had such a horrible experience. I was so dissatisfied. You know, going to Pearl Vision, I thought the technology that they would be utilizing is going to be top top tier, top of the line, latest and greatest. It really wasn't. It was very archaic. And I felt like I was doing all the work as far as being able to tell the differences between the different lenses that they were rotating through. You know, I got fitted for a pair of glasses. I got the glasses. Probably three months later, it was just, you know, I couldn't see straight. I was having headaches and it just something was off. And again, I had to use my insurance already, so I couldn't go back for another exam. So I decided to go to Walmart and I was blown away by the professionalism of the, of the staff and the physician, how quickly and easily I was able to get an appointment. When I got in, um, the technology that they used, they had the latest and greatest machinery. And it was just such an overall fantastic experience for a fraction of the price. So I definitely did not, was not a believer in this, but you know, Walmart did it right. They did, they did what they needed to, as far as making sure that the patient experience is through the roof and it's fantastic. They followed up with me via email after my appointment to make sure everything was going well. And even the physician was really, it's a consumer based store. And even the health side of it is very much consumer based. So they want to make sure that they're giving the consumer the best experience possible. I don't have enough good things to say about that. And if this is the model that they're using, on the other side where it's the radiology, the laboratory, and all the other services that they're going to be offering, 
I think they have a winning formula. That's really interesting to hear because I have usually not had the best experiences with Walmart, but it's just been average. But to hear you say it that way is really interesting and very unique. I was blown away. I never thought I would have a good experience with Walmart. I just figured Walmart is the run of the mill department store trying to break into this. You know, I guess, I, again, I was using it for my uh, eyeglasses, but in that space, I was blown away. They were fantastic. So what do you think of Walmart and Target and all of these department stores that are adding these little add-ons here and there as time goes on? Because I remember a time when Target used to just be Target. Then we had Target Greatland. Then we had Super Target. And then eventually Target's just became the Super Target's. That was the norm that they're trying to make sure that it's everything you need in one stop. What do you see this healthcare synergy or this symbiosis happening with being able to go and do imaging at a Walmart? For me personally, I think it's really interesting to see because where's the socioeconomic group of people that are probably the hardest to reach that probably have the highest amount of healthcare risk and that's hardest for them to adapt their schedule around going to a hospital. You know, th that seems like a really smart move for Walmart to do because it could in fact impact the population health in a very positive way. That thought was exactly what I started to think about as I was reading the article. So I actually went and I dug a little bit deeper. I wanted to understand the demographics within Noonan, Georgia. So now again, remember, this is about 40 miles southwest of Atlanta. And so the demographics are is the, the population itself is just over 13,000. It's about 13,700. And that population, when I say 13,700, that's number of households. So obviously the, the population is higher than that. But when you think of the breakdown in the demographics, 58% are white, 31% are black or African-American, and 11% are Latino. So if you sort of take that ethnic mix, you've got 42% are Black and Latino. Of that, 34% of households have children that are under the age of 18. And the median household income is just around $50,000. This is kind of a average, I'd say, community. There's been a huge amount of growth over the course of the last five to six years within this community. But from sort of a, a racial ethnic makeup, obviously you can see that it's split down the, the middle almost between whites and then non-whites. This may be a test bed of what other parts of America are going to look like over the course of the next five to six years. It's allotted these types of communities where if you have to spend 40 to 60 minutes in a car traveling from home to a major hospital or physician's clinic office, you don't seek care. You don't go to a doctor's office. You either self-medicate with Tylenol or Advil, or you forego that preventative service that is what you need. So I think it's really interesting. I think that piggybacks on the theory of being poor is expensive. And you see people talk about, I can't afford that $50 pair of boots that will last me five years, but I can afford a pair of boots that are $30 that will last me a year and a half. And over that five-year period, I'm actually going to spend $90 for boots instead of 50 
and I can't afford to go for that preventative care. But eventually when it's such a high threshold of pain or risk or whatever, well, now it's life threatening. So it's that like what you were talking about, that preventative care is such an integral part to our health. And when that is being impossible to afford, we're in serious issue. And I just saw right before we got online together, I saw a tweet from somebody talking about the price of the new Xbox Series S that's coming out at $299. And he said, imagine buying an Xbox per week to survive life with diabetes because his insulin is costing him out of pocket $324 a week. And that's where all of this stuff I think is starting to pile up is it's detrimental to our health to not be rich in America. I would agree. I think the economics has a strong factor. I think all of us have heard, you know, your health is based on your zip code. Uh, so if you live in a zip code that has a better sort of median household income, the more healthier you are and your ability to live a longer, healthier life is more predictable and, and capable. And so there is definitely a correlation between household income and your overall health. I think there's two other interesting points with this. One is just, we're still living in the, the midst of this pandemic. And in the article, the CEO of Walmart specifically stated in their most recent investors relation meeting that even during the pandemic, the demand for healthcare in these five clinics still was very strong where people in other parts of the U.S. weren't seeking to take advantage of preventative care. In these facilities, they were still seeing a high number of people visiting and, and taking advantage of, of the care close to home. So that's the first point. Well, Andy, but that point is also because the states that those centers are located in did not actively shut down, whereas other parts of the country did. That's why those still had a consistent uh, number of individuals coming in to seek care. That's a great point. I think the other aspect that's interesting about this, uh, and this kind of goes to a, a previous life, is when you start to think about the credit cards and the data that Walmart has. I do know that uh, one of the major credit cards that Walmart backs by one of the major banks, they've got a huge amount of information where they understand the people that are walking in through the front door, the average you know, amount of money that they're going to spend. They can predict not only the number of dollars that people are going to spend, but they can actually predict what they're going to buy and where they're going to buy it to the point where they could actually deliver in-app coupons on the, the Walmart app on, on your phone. If you start to take that type of information, combined it with what's going on within their healthcare clinics, I think you could almost not only see a population health aspect to it, but Walmart could very well have the capability of potentially influencing some better behaviors in some of these communities. Now, whether or not that actually translates into healthier people, maybe less dependency on your median household income or not, I think is yet to be seen. But I think that ability to steal from an author to nudge 
into a better choice or option with a financial incentive when you're shopping could be really interesting. My hope is, is that Walmart as a good steward of their communities, if they could explore that and sort of push that envelope, I think it would be really beneficial to, to the global health of a lot of these communities. I agree with that, Andy. I think the other thing that Walmart really needs to push for is integrating with large, again, if this model proves to be successful and they are able to really make a positive impact in their communities, I think they really need to create partnerships or avenues into their medical centers, hospitals, or healthcare organizations to allow ease of transfer of patient information so that way patients can transition between the two centers. What you're going to have is you're going to have a physician that's not going to be able to diagnose everything or, or treat every condition. You need to be able to make sure it's easy so that they can the patient's records can be relocated to the appropriate care. I agree. And I, I'm not really sure the, the community resources or the community workers that Walmart is employing, but whether they're sort of stealing from the oncology world and nurse navigators, or my preference using social workers, whatever that looks like, I think to your point, OS, whoever that expert is to help transition between the care someone seeks at Walmart and the care that they may need to, to get at a hospital or other specialty clinic is really going to be instrumental. I think we need to keep an eye on this and a tab on it, maybe check it out in a few months to, to see what's evolved from here. Roger, Roger. I like that. We'll, we'll add that as a session within the podcast. So Wes, as a person who's really about breaking new boundaries and, and whatnot, uh, why don't you lead us into our next topic? Sure. So I want to talk a little bit about breaking silos. And as we progress through this concept of remote work, which has been caused by the COVID pandemic, a lot of companies are or should be investing in opportunity marketplaces. Opportunity marketplaces provide a platform to think about work beyond the confines of an individual's roles and match employees with internal opportunities for projects. Essentially, this allows for a quick transition in projects and allows individuals to be aligned with the direction of the organization and areas that they're seeing uh, strategic demands. By doing this, this allows companies to utilize talents that are readily available within an organization and giving employees an opportunity to use the skill sets that they have um, not been able to previously use. Thus, allowing them to develop either hard or soft skills currently not used in their daily uh, role or job functions. Opportunity marketplaces will allow for greater autonomy for workers and transparency into talent processes, which allow more equal access to different types of work, new teams, new leaders, and new locations. An example of an opportunity marketplace would be during the pandemic, a large healthcare organization with a network of hospitals around the US was able to use this talent marketplace to shift local capacity to a cross system staffing network in order to centrally manage staffing as talent needs shifted dramatically across the health system to different locations and regions. So with all that being said, do you guys think this is how the majority of organizations are thinking about talent retention? Or do you see organizations continue to acquire talent outside of their respective organizations? So let me tell you a story about a company here in Rochester, Minnesota, that works with healthcare systems by providing food, the chefs, the the restaurants, the cafeterias, all that. Their name is Morrison Healthcare, and I will definitely be okay with 
talking about their name because I'm giving them a complete shout out based on what I have observed with doing a project with one of their marketing teams with interviewing a whole bunch of people that work there. And I came to find out that they are 100% invested in the people that are in their company, helping them succeed and to grow in their careers within the company. And every person interviewed who has been there for years. And a lot of these workers have been through transitions of multiple different companies coming in and managing the food for the healthcare system at Mayo Clinic. Every person said that this was the best place. They offer education benefits. They offer career advancements. They do mentoring. I mean, it was, it was so wild to hear that at the end of the day, after hearing all of this, I'm like, well, maybe I should apply and start working as a chef and work my way up. It was really that intense of a, a promised career trajectory for anybody who wanted to take that step. That being said, I know a lot of companies still have that somebody from the outside is better and that you can see that as a generational thing where it's very difficult to advance in your career if you're not hopping jobs every two to three years because people for some reason don't want to give you a pay increase, but they'll hire somebody outside for that pay increase to do the same thing you are applying for. It's the minority that have that promote from within mentality that for some reason is the way that things had worked for generations. And now we're trying to work away from that. And I'm, I'm confused as to why, because you would think the people who have been there the longest, who know how to get things done, how everything works. You know, I recently took on a client that within the first week, I realized it was a bad fit because they wanted me to be up to speed with everything that's going on within a week of signing a contract with them and running with them as if I had been with the company for two or three years. I'm like, that's way insane for you to expect me to do that. And all of that time with churn and education costs the company more money in the long run. For far too long, to, to your earlier point, it's been this post-industrial revolution mentality. You know, we've got interchangeable parts, we've got interchangeable people, and if we need something new to come in, then we look outside and we take one person out and put a new one in, and we can keep the machine sort of running the way that it always has run. Problem is that people, especially people in today's world that are educated, they've gone to school, they're creative, we've got access to all sorts of information, and we all want to continue to, to push ourselves in and have that drive. We don't necessarily want to continue to do the same thing day in, day out for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And if we don't get that outlet within a company, then often we want to pivot and we want to look someplace else. And I think that's where this opportunity marketplace inside of a company is an amazing idea. It allows you to keep that tribal knowledge inside of the company and it allows people that want to continue to grow and push and learn new attributes and aspects in different parts of the company to explore or get stretch assignments or to volunteer and work on other teams. And I, I think it's an amazing concept. I think it's something that maybe a lot of startups have the ability to do just out of necessity. I think potentially because of the pandemic the world is going through, you've had to kind of create these new channels and new ways to work. 
And so I'm just hoping that this thought process and topic catches on with other major companies. Because to your point, I think from a loyalty, retention, employee satisfaction perspective, it all has to help really like increase and in, in bump that. At least that's my perspective. Wes, what, what do you think? So let me ask you guys another question then. I like where you guys are going with this. And I agree with the concept of you know, cross-pollination within one organization and being able to really utilize your skills that you have within an organization, but working on different teams. So that way everyone is working unanimously towards a certain direction. So how easy is it to implement something like this uh, or create a culture of opportunity marketplaces where teams are actively looking to bring on individuals that may not normally be within their working circles? How easily do you think it is for a company to implement something like this? I can tell you based on a previous company that I worked for, which happens to be a rather large conglomerate, this was actually something that they started to, to put in place. So much so that you would walk onto a floor and you kind of had the traditional cube farm where you've got a bunch of cubicles and you've got the walls up and no one really interacts. Or if you want to, you need to walk around the, the cube and say, hello, Susan, hello, Sarah. You know, what are you guys up to? And you take that five or 10 minute break. What they did is they got rid of all of the cubes, all of the separation. They created this open workspace feel and they made the desks mobile. So you would show up in the morning, you would select the, the desk that you wanted to, to work on. And based on projects that were going on, you could have a morning huddle and you could volunteer to be on a different project. So I know for me, one of the things that I had always been interested in is how our finance team worked. I always felt that the, the finance guys were super smart. They asked really great questions. I wanted to learn as much as I could from them. So I volunteered for, for one of the projects within the finance function. And I did that for a period of three months. And I learned a lot. It was great because, again, I got to peek behind the curtain of what they were doing and how it related to this product that was going on. And at the same time, I actually felt as if I was contributing to what they were doing because they didn't really understand how marketing as a function thought about product development and, and costs and those types of things. It was this really great experience for me where it was give and take. I got stretched, I learned a lot. And so I know firsthand within very large organizations that have years and years of processes that if the organization wants to implement it, they can implement it. It just depends on the, the culture. So Andy, in that culture and in that environment, being able to work on the finance team, was there ever egos involved that, oh, who's this newcomer? Is he gonna take over our position? Is he gonna take over our job? Was that ever an issue or was that really, that culture didn't have that kind of attitude or you know those types of concerns or fears and it was more of a collective, cohesive environment where everyone just wanted to help one another and work together? The culture that was created within the organization is one of change. There's, there's only one constant that the business could always count on and that was change. Culturally, they accepted that people want to be lifelong learners and would welcome you in. 
And as long as you led with the emotional intelligence of listening and learning and contributing value when it's needed, no one ever really had a problem. Now, are there those instances in which people want to come in and sort of dominate and take things over? And yeah, that always happens at any organization. But I would say for the most part, the, the culture within this organization was one of teamwork, collaboration, and always trying to, to continue to add that learning objective for employee satisfaction. That's amazing. It, it, you know, that culture and the stories that you're telling remind me a lot about the tour that I took of the Facebook campus over in San Francisco. It completely exactly how you described it, where when you walk in, there's no you know official desks, there's no silos, there's no place to hide. You go and sit wherever you want. You can sit in next to anyone. Even the CEO doesn't have an office per se. He's just got you know like a little bit of an area assigned to himself, but you can go and talk to him. And that really allows for great cross communication, working different people, working around different people, looking at what other people in different areas of the company are doing and to provide insight and learn more. So I think that's great. AJ, I'd love to get your thoughts around this. You know, I know you've worked with a lot of different companies. What are your thoughts about opportunity marketplaces? I think with the change in culture that we're seeing and the change in our understanding of what it takes to get work done, opportunity marketplaces are really interesting for me to see what what they're going to do. I think to Andy's point, when he was talking about the work environment where you could just grab a desk and make it mobile, I couldn't remember what company was that you were talking about. I specifically didn't say. Okay. Because I remember years ago, the employee handbook for a company called Valve got leaked online. And that is the company who makes Steam or the Steam OS or Steam Game Center. So if you're a PC gamer, you know Steam very well. Valve is a company that sounded exactly like what you were describing where even the CEO can't tell you what to do as an employee. And what I found interesting about how they ran their company is they spent 80% of their time as an HR department on hiring the right people. It was a grueling, and it is a grueling hiring process. And you are on a mobile desk and you find people who maybe you're interested with, you have an idea, and you just start getting going on it and you build it and you see what happens. And with the success that they've had, it works. But the problem is you can't just replicate the surface level parts of it where you just have a great open office environment, some free soda and snacks and a gym and call it a hip new place to work. What fundamentally made that place different is how they implemented their hiring process. And I think what Andy, with that company you were describing from the top down, there was a culture of innovation, of change. That change is constant. We're not going to rest on our laurels. We're not going to do it how it's always been done. If there's ways to improvise, improve, or iterate, we do it and we attack it with vim and vigor. I think those are the kind of things that we miss out on when we try to adapt to new changes or new techniques. Because open office environments work for some and they're terrible for others. You have to know how to adapt with all of these different environments and workflows. And for me, and I wonder what you guys think, but I love the idea of how I think Daniel Pink wrote, coined the term, I'm not sure, but I remember seeing him do a TED talk on results-oriented work environments. 
and I probably beat this drum a lot, but I love the idea of we're at a time and place where we're more productive than we've ever been in history in America, yet we work more hours, we get paid less for that, and it seems almost ridiculous. There is a small but vocal minority talking about changing our culture of work into a results-oriented work environment. Meaning if you need to come in from noon to midnight to do your work and that works for you, great. If you need to work from home for a few hours, no problem. As long as you're getting your stuff done, why do we need to make sure that your butt is in a chair from nine to five because somebody's feelings make it feel like that's you being productive? And so I don't know if you guys have ever worked in a results-oriented work environment. As a, as a freelancer and contractor, that's 100% my environment that I place on myself, that if my results aren't shown, I don't get paid, and all of that time goes to waste. So as far as like a work environment for a company, have you ever been exposed to that, and what do you think of that type of environment? I mean, I can tell you just this week, I'm still kind of working remotely from home finishing up my projects and doing what I need to. And, you know, my boss has been awesome. He's like, do what you need to do what you can get whatever you can get done. He doesn't care when I work, whether I log in at midnight, 2am, 3am, 8am, it doesn't matter as long as the work gets done. Um, so I am kind of living that, that life right now. And it's incredible because you can still be human. You can still take care of the responsibilities that you have towards your friends, your family and your obligations. Um, while still earning a paycheck. You know, historically, I've always worked in a clinic that was operational from eight to five or nine to five, and you had to be there during those hours. So, you know, it's nice to be able to work in this kind of a culture. The first 10 years of my career was much like yours, working in a clinic, working for a hospital, managing teams, leading teams. And there's typical quote unquote office hours, whether it's eight to five or nine to seven or whatever the, the case may be. But for the most part, even in leadership roles or different things where maybe you didn't really need to physically be in the building between those hours, there was just this unspoken rule that you needed to be because that's how people are productive. And the last 10 years of my career, coming to the other side of the industry of medicine, I've worked in organizations in which here's your goal, here's your objective, You've got this period of time to get this done. We don't care if you work eight to five. We don't care if you work five to nine. We don't care if you work weekends or not, but this is what you need to get done and you need to have it done on time, on budget. If there's any challenges or hiccups, raise the flag early and often so that way you can, you can meet your timelines. I've made the conscious decision as I look at, at where I want to go for the next 10 years when I want to grow up and, and what I want to be is that I thrive in this type of environment. I do not see myself going back to an environment in which I have to be in an office. People have to see my eyeballs to trust that I'm being productive and I'm delivering good work. And that's, that's just who I am as, as a person. You know, it's really interesting as we talk about this, it reminds me a lot of one of the episodes of Lower Decks, that new Star Trek cartoon that's on CBS All Access. Have you guys caught any of that by chance? Nope, I have not. So there was an episode about the entire crew having buffer time built into their tasks that they did. And the captain caught wind of it 
and just kind of went overboard saying, you know, the leadership, the senior staff has now delegated how much time each task should take. And if you don't complete the task in that amount of time, then you're going to have a consequence. It's comical because within like three days, the entire ship is thrown into chaos, alarms blaring everywhere, smoke coming out of terminals, all of that stuff, right? And we laugh at it because it's very comical. But then you think about it, oh, crap, this is real life. We have a bunch of leadership at times in our work environments where they think they know how long a task should take. And maybe they don't have a fundamental grasp of all of the things behind the scenes that needs to happen in order for something to take. And so eventually the the captain of the ship said, okay, have your buffer time in there. Because the environment for that crew was like, we need time to just chill in between each major job. Because you can't just be 100% productive 100% of the time. That's physically impossible. You'll just burn out and then be worthless. It was just an episode that I think demonstrates this kind of work environment that that we're shifting to understanding that it may take me like an hour to get to do this thing but there's three other hours of work that I need to do to prep for it my degree in college is a BA in youth ministry and I can't tell you how many times I've had people when I was do as a youth pastor thought I only showed up on Sundays and Wednesdays and did nothing throughout the week because that's the only time they see me so I like this this shift in our culture of seeing how work can be done in new ways. And like what we were talking about is it's breaking down a lot of those silos because we're being forced to see what other people have to do and how they get their work done. And as you say that, AJ, what it really reminds me of is empathy and having empathy for your workers. So I think that's a natural segue uh, to your topic. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that because... One of the things that we that's fundamental for design and design thinking, in my experience, has been empathy, understanding what other people go through, understanding how people go through that. NPR did a great podcast release on Hidden Brain called U2.0, The Empathy Gym. What is really intriguing about this is that empathy isn't something we're innately born with. Some people some people have it a little more than others, but empathy is something that needs to be exercised like a muscle. And going through this article about how to strengthen our empathy and do that, it reminded me of somebody that I got to meet and actually help build a platform and video production for the platform, Dr. Amit Sood, S-O-O-D. Now, he used to be a doctor here at Mayo Clinic. He has since left, and I see him as the, the next Oprah. He's such a sweet, soft, gentle, caring man. But what he's done is he's taken 20 years of research of neuroscience and understood how we can train ourselves, train our brains, rewire those those neurons into being more resilient to the highs and lows of life. The bedrock of that is empathy and compassion, understanding our relationship to the world around us. One of the one of my favorite exercises is every time you wake up, think of five people you're thankful for in your life. And it's just such a simple thing. But as you as you do it, it's kind of like training for a marathon. You start with these little exercises. Uh, one of my favorite ones, and it's, it's hilarious as he talks about how your spouse will definitely be confused and probably suspicious of you. But before you go in the house after after work or maybe go upstairs or come downstairs, wherever your office may be, 
take a minute to think about how you would act if you haven't seen that person for a month and you're just coming back home after a month away and treat that person in that regard. Let all of those little things slide and just be so overjoyed to see your family, to see your significant other, whomever is in the house with you, as if you haven't seen them for a month. It starts becoming and forming a habit. I'm curious as to what your two's experiences are with empathy as a training thing that you do. I try to relate as much as I can, you know, in healthcare through our training and being working in the in the area of medicine we are taught or we are expected to be empathetic to the patients that we're taking care of we want to help them in their most difficult time and you know andy and i our background is you know treating cancer patients and that's the most vulnerable time that's the time when patients are the most scared and we are taught in our training to be mindful of what they may be going through and to try to understand that and be empathetic towards them. What I like to do is, you know, that's how I've been raised, brought up thinking. Lately, what I've been doing is looking at what business leaders are writing and what, you know, are they showing an empathetic side to when their companies have failures or when something happens and how do they show that side? And so it's interesting that if you look at Jeff Bezos, you know, he has a very high level of EQ and he's able to determine and communicate very effectively his empathetic side when something doesn't go right. Um, and it's just applying that and those methodologies and kind of finding an area in between where healthcare and business meet and to be empathetic both in expressing your concerns for a patient as well as being able to effectively communicate that on paper, that's what I'm actually trying to work on myself. I think inherently what is just part of who I am is being a natural observer. And so it's, you know, what do I see? What do I hear? And then what do I think that person is thinking? And what are they doing? And based off of that, making my own sort of assumptions and, and try to place myself in that person or person's shoes, I think is the, the definition of what empathy is. Beyond that, though, I think what I've more recently started to realize is, is that doing those sorts of things may be empathetic, but that's really about making it about me. And so what I've tried to do is have more compassion so that the observations that I make in having compassion for that person makes it and continues for it to be about that person versus me sort of inputting that person into to my own shoes or, or vice versa. But I think empathy or compassion, whatever we want to call it, I think it is a ever increasingly more important attribute for really good leaders whether it's a physician leader, whether it's a nursing leader, whether it's a leader of a business, whether it's inside of the world of medicine or OS, as you said, uh, someone like Amazon with Jeff Bezos, having that empathy is really what differentiates and separates, in my opinion, the great from the average. If you look at other people that 
we maybe aspire or hold up as as wonderful leaders in the business world, whether it's Warren Buffett, Elon Musk, you know, Steve Jobs previously, those are all things that inherently they had a knack for. And AJ, to your point, I think it's something that somehow in our daily practices of just living, we have to figure out how to work out that muscle, how to build it, how to hone it, how to continue to improve and just make it part of our natural sort of daily occurrences. And I think for all of that, for all of us, at least for me specifically, it's something that I try and keep top of mind. I try to be ultraly aware of. And I know sometimes I I forget about it in, you know, the the midst of eight hours of Zoom calls. But I think it's it's a really important muscle for us to continue to to build. So just to interject uh, an opinion, one thing that really drew me to the company Accurate that you both work for, and, and that's not a big secret to anybody, is the thoughtfulness of the design of the CyberKnife machine. And hearing some of the engineers and some of the physicists and people talking about it, there was such an inherent sense of empathy within how it was designed and how different it was from everything else on the market to where instead of asking the patient to stop moving, what if we could make the machine move around the patient and make the experience enjoyable or at least not torturous? My first experience with radiation oncology as a conference was in Nashville. And it almost, I tell people who, who aren't in the industry, it feels like a medieval torture convention where it's how can we strap down a person with more wings and nuts and so they can't move even a fraction of a millimeter. Seeing Accuray as just coming out of left field with a device that doesn't even strap you down in any way, shape, or form, you're just sitting there going, okay, they understand what a patient's going through. They see that empathy through their eyes and they're trying to design around that. And it's difficult. It's difficult to design a machine for the person versus make the person adapt to the machine. And that's that's the road that I think is worth taking with every choice we make. I want to end today with a quick little vocabulary lesson, because I think not only is empathy a great word, but I think there's a word in the English language that we need to know, and it's called sonder. And if you don't know sonder, sonder is a word that's been adapted for understanding that it's the realization that each random passerby is living a life that's as vivid and complex as your own. And I think that is puberty growth spurt that you go through to learn empathy. It's it's the ability to stop othering others or dismissing others different from you, but realizing that their world is just as complex, just as vivid, just as meaningful as your own. And I think that's the beginning of the road to meaningful empathy with others. I have to say, AJ, I absolutely love that word. I love the definition. It's a word. I don't use that often and hate to say it, but forgot its definition. When you read it and you talked through it and shared it, it really resonates with me because at the end of the day, this is why I do this. This is why I think the three of us do this is because we fundamentally believe that the most sacred interface inside of the world of medicine is that between a patient and a physician. 
And when given that undivided attention between those two constructs, that's truly the beauty of what a physician is able to do. And that's how they practice their art of medicine is through Saunder and by having the empathy for the other person in that, that room. And that's, that's the ability to actually deliver care at the end of one. Agreed. There it is. So I think with that, we should wrap it up because I can't think of a better way to end this episode. So I've been AJ Montpetit and you can find me on the socials on LinkedIn and Twitter at AJ Montpetit, M-O-N-T-P-E-T-I-T. Or if you're French persuasion-y, you can say Montpetit. And I'm Awes Mirza and you can find me on the socials at Awes F. Mirza. And as always, I'm Andy DeLeo, better known as my name, Deplour, Cancer Geek. You can find me on all the social platforms, including LinkedIn now, crazy as that is. And as always, thank you for listening. If you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or interesting topics that you'd like us to address, please email us at, at theendpod at gmail.com, or you can email me again at cancergeek at gmail.com. And remember... At the end of the day, it's all about practicing medicine at the end of one.